at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, an earthquake occurs. Matthew 28, 3, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an earthquake occurs. The earthquake in Revelation is God's exclamation point, marking <clears throat> the last call in offering his mercy to a world that is falling apart. Today may be God's last call for you. Will you open your heart and make him the king of your life? Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Big George Foreman tells the amazing story of a famous boxer finding Jesus. Foreman was actually the heavyweight champion twice. Age 24, until Muhammad Ali beat him, and then again at age 45, the oldest title holder in history. The first time around, George was a proud, cocky, womanizing fighter who thought only of himself. But in 1977, all of that changed in a single night. That night, George was fighting Jimmy Young, who beat him in a 12-round battle that left George exhausted and bitter. George retired to his dressing room, was pacing back and forth, when all of a sudden he passed out. George believes that he died that night. It's a powerful moment in the movie. George was terrified of dying. His worst fears were happening. George told one reporter, I was gone. Above me, under me, all around me was nothing. And then there was sadness. There was no hope for me. It was like someone had dropped me out in the sea. George cried out for mercy. And then he said, a hand reached in and pulled me out of nothing and out of death. I was alive and breathing in that dressing room. And I started screaming Jesus Christ has come alive in me. And I started kissing everybody. I tried to make a break for the door. They said, George, you don't have any clothes on. <laughs> they had to hold me down, he says. And then he says this, I got a second chance to live. George gave up boxing, started preaching, opened a youth center, when he ran out of money, he started boxing again, age 45, shocked the world, regained his title. The takeaway from the movie for me was the mercy of God. George was a mean, bitter, ungrateful, self-centered narcissist. When God met him in a near-death experience, George says the movie's all about hope. You can find hope here. Foreman says, there is a living God and I'm proof of it. That is also the message of Revelation chapter 11. Only this time it wasn't just one man who was mean and bitter and ungrateful and self-centered. It was the whole world, at least what was left of it. The setting for Revelation 11 is the second half of the tribulation period. 
Now the seal judgments of Revelation 6 had passed. The Antichrist has consolidated his power. He's broken his treaty with Israel at the halfway point by desecrating their temple in Jerusalem. Now the trumpet judgments of Revelation 8 and 9 are beginning. Two billion people died in that first half of the tribulation period under the seal judgments, Revelation 6, verse 8. Another two billion are about to die under the trumpet judgments in the second half of the tribulation period, Revelation 9, 18. In the first half of the tribulation period, God had raised up 144,000 Jewish evangelists to proclaim the gospel. Now he raises up two witnesses. You see the... Uh, let's go back there to the screen there. We're having a little problems, I think, on the uh, internet. Uh, but the first half there of the seven-year tribulation period is the beginning of sorrows. That's when the 144,000 will be preaching. The great tribulation there, the second half, is when the two witnesses will be doing their work for the Lord. The lives of the two witnesses mirror the ministry of Jesus. And they do it in five ways. First, the two witnesses are predestined. I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're going to talk about this. What does it mean to be predestined? Chapter 11 begins, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it. Because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Sounds pretty specific, doesn't it? The word predestined is a very confusing word for most Christians. Are we merely puppets on a string? robotically acting out a script that's already been written? The Bible says absolutely not. Everywhere in Scripture, human beings are portrayed as making free decisions that have serious consequences. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that word whosoever is found 110 times in the New Testament? And it always has an unrestricted meaning. Salvation is open to all. But you are responsible to trust Christ. And there are eternal consequences if you do not. One of the best books brings us all together is the book Chosen But Free by Norm Geisler. Our free choices work together with God's divine plan and it's going to unfold with exact precision according to scripture. Now this should fill the Christian with great confidence because God will never allow history to just spin out of control. He reigns over the universe at all times. He knows the hairs on your head. For some of us, it's not hard to count, right? 
but he knows the hairs on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. That is why God reveals to us ahead of time that we are living right now in the present church age. The next thing that will happen on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. We're going up, folks. Okay, praise God. And that will be followed by a great world leader, the Antichrist, who will emerge out of the shadows. And he will sign a treaty with Israel guaranteeing their protection for seven years. During the first half of that tribulation period, 144,000 Jewish evangelists will spearhead the greatest revival in world history right in the midst of the sealed judgments of Revelation chapter 6. We look closely at that last Sunday. At the midway point of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will desecrate the newly constructed Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He will break his treaty with Israel, and he will become their worst enemy. But thankfully, God has never left without a witness. During the last half of the tribulation period, God is going to raise up two witnesses who will minister for 42 months. In fact, verse 3 tells us it will be exactly 1,260 days that they will minister. This will happen. God does not lie. His word will be fulfilled. Just as Jesus ministered for three and a half years, so will the two witnesses. Now that brings us to the second way in which the two witnesses mirror the ministry of Jesus. They will proclaim truth. Verse 3 says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. The word prophesy means to speak forth, to proclaim God's truth, to reveal the future. The two witnesses will proclaim that earth has 1260 days to get right with God. Just like Jonah preached to Nineveh, 40 more days, judgment will fall. Just like Noah preached God's word in, Revelation, in Genesis 6, verse 3, my spirit will not contend with man forever. His days will be 120 years. Friends, the clock is ticking. Heartland family, today, the clock is ticking for you. We don't know how much time that each of us has, but I can tell you this, the number of your days are numbered before you are born. For Psalm 139, 16 says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The two witnesses will sound the alarm that time is running out. But the good news is this, there's a way of escape. Verse 7 describes their witness as a testimony. Greek word is martyria. It means to bear witness to Jesus and his power to save. If you place your trust in Jesus as your Savior from sin, as the Lord of your life, you will escape judgment. Why? Because Jesus already paid the penalty for your sins. John 5, 24 
Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but will cross over from death to life. Last week, we looked at the great revival spearheaded by 144,000 Jewish evangelists in Revelation 7. I believe that revival will continue into the last half of the tribulation period, and God is going to be doing a special work among the Jewish people. Next year, when we go to the Holy Land, we're going to visit the ancient city of Petra in the nation of Jordan. So what is special about Petra? Besides being the site where uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies was filmed. Well, Petra is the likely place where the Jews will find refuge during the last half of the tribulation period. And it's only 100 miles from Jerusalem. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place of the temple, let the reader understand those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Revelation 12, 6 teaches the same thing. The woman that is Israel fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she will be taken care of for 1,260 days. The Antichrist will not be able to touch them. Prophecies are going to be filled right and left, fulfilled right and left during the tribulation period, including this massive revival among the Jewish people. Romans 11.25 says Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. As I pointed out last Sunday, there were 23 Jewish followers of Jesus in Israel, known followers of Jesus, when they became a nation in 1948, 23. There was about 2,000 Jewish believers in Jesus worldwide. Today, it is estimated that there are over 1 million Jewish followers of Jesus worldwide. Friends, the Jews are God's timepiece. If you watch what's happening in Israel, you'll see what God is up to. And by the end of the tribulation period, Romans eleven twenty six says, all of Israel will be saved. The two witnesses are going to play a special part in that. Many Bible scholars have speculated that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. You know, they already came back once, right? On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. Just maybe they're going to come back a second time. I believe that to be the case. Now, this leads right into the third way in which the two witnesses will mirror the ministry of Jesus. Friends, they are going to perform miracles. Amazing miracles. Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth, devours their enemy. This is how anyone who wants to harm them will die. These men have power to shut up the sky so it will not rain 
during the time that they are prophesying. They have the power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Did you know that Jesus performed 37 miracles during the three and a half years of his public ministry? 37 that are recorded in the New Testament. Each of them had a specific purpose. Jesus never performed miracles for amusement. He never did it to do a show. He never did it randomly. Each miracle was accompanied by a message. And it either met a serious human need or it confirmed his identity and his authority. But the 37 miracles that are recorded are only a small fraction of all that he did. We know that because John 21, 25 says Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room enough for the books that would have been written. And yet here's what's absolutely shocking. Right after Jesus followed up these thousands of miracles, his first three years of public ministry, he follows these up with the granddaddy of them all, raising Lazarus from the grave after he had been in there for four days. But do you realize within one week's time after he performed that miracle, they nailed him to a cross and killed him. Sadly, the same thing will be true of the two witnesses. They will never do miracles for show, but only to demonstrate that they are, in fact, true spokesmen for God. And yet, once again, the vast majority of people won't listen to them. Instead, they will choose to believe a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 describes the rebels like this. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Do you realize, friends, that 150 years ago, Charles Darwin told a lie, the lie of evolution. It is in direct contradiction with the account of creation in Genesis. Evolution is the idea that life evolved from non-life, from single-celled creatures to multi-celled creatures, to fish, to amphibians, to reptiles, to birds, to mammals, to apes, and then to us. Darwin's theory defies science. It defies logic decisively on many different levels. Even a single strand of DNA should, all, should be all that's needed to rule out the possibility of evolution. When I was a young man, this subject of evolution really tripped me up. Because all of these highly educated people with all of these letters after their names we're all teaching it. Many Christians were bending over backwards to try to fit evolution into the book of Genesis. I remember reading John Stott. John Stott was a great man of God in so many ways. 
But man, did he get this issue wrong. Scott, Stott says this in the, his book, Understanding the Bible. He says, my belief is that several forms of pre-Adamic hominids may have existed for thousands of years previously. These hominids began to advance culturally. They made their cave drawings. They buried their dead. It is conceivable that God created Adam out of one of these hominids. Hmm. How in the world does Stott get that out of Genesis chapter 2? It's baffling. But that's what happens when we try to take a big lie and sort of try to make it a, just a little lie. The Bible describes the creation of Adam like this. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. If you can convince people that they weren't created, but evolved by chance, you can convince them of anything. Once the creator is out of the way, we're just left with our own wisdom. No wonder you can talk people into killing their own young and then call it freedom to choose. No wonder you can talk people into approving of homosexual marriage and then call it marriage justice. No wonder you can talk people into mutilating a child's body and then call it gender-affirming care. You know, folks, sometimes people just won't listen. No matter how many times God reveals himself in miraculous ways. And that brings us to the fourth way in which the two witnesses will mirror the ministry of Jesus. They will perish. Verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. The beast is none other than the Antichrist, a powerful human leader who will be energized by a demonic power that comes from the pit of hell. He's a modern-day Judas who will appear to be a good guy at first, then Satan will fill him and he'll betray everyone and everything that is good and decent and pleasing to God. Those still alive on earth are going to celebrate the death of the two witnesses. <laughs> It's going to be like Christmas time. They will even exchange gifts with each other. It'll be like the Wizard of Oz when the witch dies. Ding dong, the witch is dead. It'll be one big party. An interesting side note is that it was not possible for every people, tribe, language, and nation to gaze on their bodies at one time until the invention of satellite TV. 
Now we can see events on our phones from any place in the world, every corner of the planet, which is one more reminder to us that we are living in the age of our Lord's return. Now this brings us to the fifth and final way in which the two witnesses will mirror the ministry of Jesus. They will prevail. Praise God. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Once again, we see fascinating parallels between the ministry of the two witnesses and the ministry of our Lord. Jesus resurrected from the dead on the third day. And he ascended 40 days later, not in front of his enemies, but in front of his friends. In contrast, the two witnesses will resurrect after three and a half days and then ascend to heaven immediately. This will likely be replayed over and over again on satellite TV. If one of the witnesses is Elijah, <laughs> this drama is even heightened. For remember, Elijah already ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire, 2 Kings 2.11. The other, if the other witness is Moses, it's also interesting to note that the end of his life is shrouded in mystery. Deuteronomy 32.6 says that God buried him, but his grave was never found. Verse 13 tells us that once the two witnesses ascended, within one hour, an earthquake shook Jerusalem. Throughout Scripture, earthquakes remind us of the presence of the Lord. Exodus 19.18, Mount Sinai is rocked by an earthquake right before God revealed the law to Moses. 1 Kings 19.11, Mount Horeb is hit with an earthquake right before God reveals himself to Elijah. Matthew 27.51, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, an earthquake occurs. Matthew 28, 3, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an earthquake occurs. The earthquake in Revelation is God's exclamation point, marking <clears throat> the last call in offering his mercy to a world that is falling apart. Today may be God's last call for you. Will you open your heart and make him the king of your life? I close with this. You know, there are many critics today who will mock the book of Revelation. They will make fun of it. They will dismiss it. They will say it reads like a wacky fantasy. Even many Christians view it as an allegory, a fictional story that has a deeper meaning. But the only problem is that this has led to people reading into the text whatever they wish. Certainly, the Lord never intended this. For 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture, including the book of Revelation, is God-breathed. It is useful 
for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Imagine if the Apostle John saw a vision showing atomic warfare. He's in the first century. Imagine if he saw a vision of tanks and jet fighters and Apache helicopters. He has no vocabulary to express that. Imagine if he is seeing biological men who look like women. Imagine if he is seeing biological women who look like men. Imagine if he is seeing human beings who have technologically enhanced capabilities. How is he going to express that? Recently, I was listening to a podcast by Elisa Childers, and she was interviewing Christian author Nancy Piercy, absolutely fascinating. Nancy speaks all over the country on transgenderism and the Bible. And she is predicting, Nancy is predicting, that transgenderism is not going to be the end. Rather, transgenderism is going to continue to morph into transhumanism. Transgenderism is being released from the confines of your gender. Transhumanism is being released from the confines of your human body. Many experts see this as the climax of our evolutionary development. Right now, we are on the verge of brain implants that will cause you to think faster. We are on the verge of seeing artificial enhancement, enhancements that will give you superhuman capabilities. Ultimately, the goal here is to keep extending lifespans until we reach immortality. But friends, there's a problem with all this. If you tinker with our genetic code long enough, at some point, we cease to be human beings made in the image of God. And that, our Lord will never allow. How do we know that? Because it's already happened once in Genesis 6, when fallen angels were intimate with human women, leading to a superhuman race called the Nephilim. And what happened in response to that? God sent Noah's flood. Read Genesis chapter 6. Started all over again with Noah and his family. I say this today not to scare you, but to prepare you. Don't have fear, have faith. Don't spend your time worrying, spend your time worshiping. God put a hedge of protection around Noah and his family, didn't he? Go down to the ark this summer and walk through the ark and see what the protection of God looks like. Because as long as you stay close to God, you are safe and secure for all eternity. Are you staying close to him today?